Welcome to Pastor Potluck. I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantin. And today we are back, and I'm glad that we're back because I've missed doing this last week. And we are going to be talking about probably a mixture of all kinds of stuff because that's just what we do here. One of the specific things that we were wanting to talk about because in the lectionary text today is from 2 Samuel. And so I'm going to let Peter take over because that's just what we discussed doing. Yeah, so 2 Samuel, we have to understand it's a different time, a different era. You mean from now? From now. Okay. So, but uh, before we get into it, I just want to say that the story that we're reading today is something that a lot of people carry around with them in their heads. They hear it one time and it just sticks because there's a lot of details and a lot of drama and a lot of taboo. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. And... I've just read through this, so I'm not going to chime in, but I do want to hear you, Court, from memory, tell me what this story is about, or like from your own memory, plus what you think sort of is the common understanding of what this story is about. Okay, so I'm going to start with that, and when I said it was subtle as a hammer, but when you said the story of David and Bathsheba, and I quickly said, "Mm mm-hmm, I did that because that's what most people do. Most people think they know the story of David and Bathsheba. And I'll give you an example of why I mentioned that. Okay. I was one time when I was younger, like, I don't think I was even an adult. I may have been. But I was at some Baptist revival thing. And this preacher was up there and he was going through the story of Jesus' heritage from, I want to say Matthew. And in it, he's pointing out all these horrible women you know and he's talking about what they did he talks about tamar if you know that story it's not at all like he presented and then when he gets to when he gets to bathsheba he just says of course you know about bathsheba and everybody in the congregation is like "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm." and it's like yeah you know we know that she has a scarlet letter a on her chest and so i and I guess going to present the story that I think that most people think because I have been conditioned in Baptist churches to think that is the story of David and Bathsheba. Once upon a time, boys and girls, there was an innocent shepherd boy named David who stayed that innocent shepherd boy for the rest of his life. And even when he became king, he was still every bit as innocent and golden and wonderful as he was as a shepherd boy. And one day, as he was just going about his job, kinging, walking around with his scepter, doing kingly things, and everyone loved him, and all the peasants rejoiced, he happened to look out his window. Just a harmless thing to do, after all. I'm looking at a beautiful cemetery out the window right now. And as he's looking out the window, here is this detestable woman who's just flaunting it all over the neighborhood. She's... He didn't think it was detestable. No, no. In fact, he turned away, of course. Uh, Well, no, he did think it was detestable in the story that I'm telling. Oh, did he? He turns away. He actually goes up to his roof to escape this woman, but she was just... Actually, she chased him by going up to her roof and was as naked as the day she was born and just throwing it out there that she is available to him. One would ask where her husband is. Well, that's simple. He was off at battle. And David, although he tried to deny it, could not resist this alluring temptation 
because everyone knows that when a man is attracted to the to a woman, it is her fault, and therefore he has her brought up to the to the palace. palace. Yeah, I've stayed in the King David Hotel. I should know these things. He has her brought up to the palace, and she's all over him, and she's irresponsible, and therefore a child comes. And what's David? What's what's a king going to do? You know, and so he has no choice. He feel he feels, but to. Not so much murder, but sweep aside her husband. <laughs> I made a hand gesture that Peter's laughing at. Okay. Just push him aside. Yeah, just just push him aside. And if he happens to die on the front line, so be it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of Bathsheba and David, the temptress and the innocent but drawn into sin mortal man. Huh. Thus ends the telling. Sounds like someone's trying to give David uh, a pass. On David this one. gets a pass. David is the golden boy in our theology. And if you read the story of David, I'm betraying myself here as the guy who's not supposed to know the story. But if you read the story of David, he's a horrible person. Hmm. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the point. We're going to get into it, but that is the point to David. Well, wait, he's a horrible on, person. Okay, I won't. So, I won't spoil it. Okay, so give me your sense of kind of like the what you think. Sort of the my I had a professor use this word, and I love it. The ambient or like just sort of what's in the air, what's around, what's the ambient moral of the story? As I told it. Yes, as you so, told it. Like the, the moral of the lie. Out there in society, and people think the story of David and Bathsheba, what's the moral of the story? What's the moral lesson that we're supposed to take away from? As presented to me, Satan's trying to get you, and will use evil temptress to do it. Okay. Even though you're trying to do your best, that temptation is always out there. Now, there's a truth in that. Well, let's read the story and see if we come up with a different conclusion. Okay. All right. So here's the story as the Bible presents it. Notice it's nothing like what I presented. Pay attention to the first and second verses particularly, ladies and gentlemen. Let me read it. I will come back to that, but go ahead. Second Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. In the spring when kings go off to war... David sent Joab along with his servants and all the Israelites, and they destroyed the Ammonites, attacking the city of Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his couch and was pacing back and forth on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone and inquired about the woman. The report came back. Isn't this Eliam's daughter, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers to get her. When she came to him, he had sex with her. Now she had been purifying herself after her monthly period. Then she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to David. I'm pregnant, she said. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When David came to him, David asked about the welfare of Joab and the army and how the battle was going. Then David told Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah left the palace 
and a gift from the king was sent after him. However, Uriah slept at the palace entrance with all his master's servants. He didn't go down to his own house. David was told Uriah didn't go down to his own house. So David asked Uriah, Haven't you just returned from a journey? Why didn't you go to your home? The chest of Israel and Judah are all living in tents, Uriah told David. And my master Joab and my master's troops are campaigning in the open field. How could I go home and eat and drink and have sex with my wife? I swear on your very life, I will not do that. Then David told Uriah, Stay here one more day. Tomorrow, I'll send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day. The next day, David called for him, and he ate and drank, and David got him drunk. In the evening, Uriah went out to sleep in the same place, along with his master's servants, but he did not go down to his own home. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. He wrote this in a letter. Place Uriah at the front of the fiercest battle and then pull back from him so that he will be struck down and die. Thus ends the reading. So, I want to draw our listeners' attention back to verses 1 and 2. And this doesn't tell at all, but this tells enough. Spoiler alert, First Baptist Church folks. We're going to be talking about this in September. In the spring of the year, this is verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, this is the time of the year when if you are a king, you have a place you are supposed to be. Skip to the end of the verse. But David remained in Jerusalem. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's not where he knows he's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. He's in a town where all the men are gone to where he's supposed to be. He's the only one around Mm. with that equipment. Mm -hmm. It happened late one afternoon when King David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof. Sounds like he's really busy. In the story, yeah, I know. It's in the story that we have been... a lot of people, myself as a child included, not from my parents, but from others, have been conditioned to think that we know it's her that's on the roof. Mm. And you're throwing te- it out there. You're telling me David is just like standing up there creeping? He's pervin' on people, yeah. Oh, gosh. It, and that may not be why he's on the roof, but he's on the roof. Mm-hmm. He's walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. It does not say that she was on the roof, mm-hmm. although sometimes they did bathe on their roofs because that's the only place you can get any privacy. Gotcha. Follow-up question. There wasn't a first question. So question that begs the question, why was she up there? Well, it te- Or why was she bathing? Well, it tells us that too. I'm trying to find the actual She was verse. purifying herself. After her uh, her period. Her After her period. monthlies, yeah. But where, where does it say that? That's in verse 4. Verse 4. Okay, it's this parenthetical statement. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Why was she doing that? It is a ritualistic purification that must be done to be considered worthy to return to worship. Yeah, it's in Leviticus. I think it is it's the like... law, and it is a faith act. 
She is being righteous. Mm-hmm. Not throwing herself out there. Right. Not Trying quote to unquote him. asking for it. Right. If you're gonna, if we're going to talk like rapists because we're talking about one. Let's just throw it out there. Yeah. No. I... Also, while I'm on my soapbox about this story and what I was led to believe as a younger person, even when you put those arguments out there that, well, that's not what it says. It says this. You often hear the phrase, well, she could have said no. What happens, Peter, when people say no to David? They die. They die. They get killed. <laughs> yeah. You don't say no to the king, especially not when the king's David. Right. In, 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 in Christian ethics, we would call this situation one in which there is an asymmetry of power. Yes. There's asymmetrical power here. David has a lot of power. Bathsheba has very little power, both in terms of gender, but also in terms of, uh, of, of station in society. He's the king. And just like it's inappropriate for, um, for a supervisor or a boss to uh, make sexual advances on somebody who is their employee mm-hmm. in our society, the same is true, and I would say even to a greater extent, with the king um, making sexual advances on people who are um, powerless. Well, people who are within his chain of command, which is, includes Uriah and Uriah's family. And in, in the scripture, it says multiple times that when Uriah comes home, it says he, uh, he went out to go to sleep in the same place alongside his master's servants. His, who's his master? David. Yeah. So he's his, this is his direct report, and he's taking advantage of him in this situation, both of them in this situation. And not only that, but just to add a little bit of you know, degree of twisted sickness to this thing. When he realizes he's stuck, because, and I love the way Second Samuel, I hate that it has to be reported, but I love the way Second Samuel reports it. With the juxtaposition of the ever-faithful Uriah versus the conniving David. But he's a man after God's own heart. Anyway, it shows that because he was so faithful he wouldn't go to his wife which you gotta imagine he was longing to do because he's so irresistible um he wouldn't do that because he's so loyal and faithful to the troops and to and yet David who wasn't Hmm. and has taken from him which Nathan will tell him later Mm -hmm. hands him a note that he can't read with his own death, death sentence in it and has him deliver it. Yeah, it's pretty despicable. It is. It is it's twisted. And I, I made that parenthetical statement, a man after God's own heart, because I wanted to get back to this. There's a purpose for David being, if we'll stop whitewashing it, mm. for David being such a scoundrel throughout the Bible, not just in this story. What's the purpose? Because if God can do great things through him, Mm. this monster, Mm. imagine what God can do through any of us. Right. Yeah, I think I often, you know, it it took me a while to to come back to the Bible and to appreciate stories like this. I, I was so frustrated for such a long time. And I've started to realize that maybe... 
the Bible has preserved frustrating stories yeah. for us. Yeah. Because it gets us to think about things. And, and uh, you know, now I turn to these stories and I see it as uh, a total gift and blessing that we have them. Because imagine if you're in power, like David, if your sons are serving as priests, which is the case at this point in time in the story, and the priests are in charge of, of the scribes, and the scribes decide what gets preserved. Like, how in the heck did they preserve this story yeah. while underneath, you know, while being fed by the king, basically? Um, and that, to me, is the miracle of the scriptures to us, that, that these, these reports, basically, this seems like something that would have been filed at HR if they had such an office in the, in the palace of the king. But we get, we get this content. And to me, that's a miracle because that means that previous generations of scribes all the way back felt like it was important for us to know that our leaders are not always perfect. In fact, are often imperfect and perhaps even more imperfect than most of us. And that's why we have to be very careful about how much trust we put in that leadership role and in the power that we grant them in our society. Yeah, and not only that, but... Speaking of the miracle of this story being in the Bible, it's a miracle that doesn't stop. Mm. Because every time I look at myself and I think I am too broken, or every time I hear someone say to me, well, maybe someone else could accomplish great things, but I'm just, you know, I'm not worthy. How broken was David? Mm. Yeah. That's the point. Right. This is a God who does amazing things through broken people. Hmm. So whatever you're going through, whatever responsibilities, like Peter was saying, are, are heaped upon you, even when you fail, doesn't mean God's through with you. And it doesn't mean that you, I won't say you can't do great things. It doesn't mean that God can't use you to bring about great things. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like there's still some questions left unanswered by this conclusion that we're drawing and that oh, is like conclusions to this Go that ahead. is like well what's the moral of the story for people who find themselves in the position of Bathsheba where they don't have as much power where they're being exploited where they're being taken advantage of I mean it seems to me like this this story really doesn't offer me much um much reason to put my trust in God if I'm in Bathsheba's shoes. This story as a standalone does not. Mm. But the fact that if you keep reading and you know the whole story, you find out that God is with Uriah. God is with Bathsheba. God is not with David in this moment. In this action, yeah. And you find that out later. Right. But you're right. If you just read this as a standalone, it's like, oh, well, David gets away with it. And not only them, but to read this and not do so from a feminist perspective, or at least entertaining that perspective, is a crime. Mm -hmm. A theological crime. Right. Which is a which is a crime that leads to the misinterpretations we started with. Yeah. Um, that heap all of the blame on this, uh, this woman who has asymmetrically less power in the situation. But we have to actively try to misunderstand. Mm. to make that happen mm -hmm. because as reported it shows us that she's the innocent one in this right so the question then is why do we do that why do we 
especially people, many of whom claim to believe in biblical inerrancy, why do we do these theological acrobatics to try to make the story seem different than it is and to try to make it... Is it just because we're guilty of something or some idea? Maybe not that we've done it, but we've excused it for so long that we can't let go of these ideas that we've held and we'll do anything we can to try to paint it in a way that makes it say what it doesn't say. And I don't know that there's one answer, but I think that may be close to it if there is one. I mean, keep putting men in the pulpit exclusively and find out how interpretation is uh, modified over centuries. That's fun. Um, We just had a big old fight about that. Not we, but the SBC just did. I just really think that, like... You, you, you start having um, equal uh, equal opportunities for men and women in terms of the preaching role. You're going to hear a lot more translations, and, and a lot of them are going to be extremely life-giving to women who have never felt seen before. Interpretations, yes. Yeah. Uh, and you're right. I wonder, though, how much we've conditioned ourselves in America, and especially Southeastern America, to the point that even women can't see it. Mm. Uh, we get, year in and year out, very good women nominated for deacon. In the Methodist church, that's different than in the Baptist church, but in the Baptist church, that's supposed to be something, some big shot position. Anyway, uh, which I have a problem with. But anyway, going on. Um, we, every year, get very wonderful people, women, nominated to be deacons who are already doing the job of deacon and serving the church and doing it better than most of the people who occupy the title of deacons. And over and over again, they say, well, I was just brought up to believe that women shouldn't be deacons. And I'm thinking, well, okay, but you're an adult now and you can think for yourself, but you know, I don't fight it too hard because who am I to do that? But anyway, that being said, I wonder how many women read this story that same way as I presented it the first time. Hmm. Because they're just, we won't let go of these belief systems that we've held on to from our childhood. So it's not yeah, just why do we do the harm, but what, how deep does it run? Right, it's called internalized oppression. Well, I call it embedded theology, but yes. Yeah, it's just this, this concept that like, well, this is how it's always been, and um, I guess I don't deserve any better. Yeah. And it's actually a concept that is very difficult for white folks to understand. Um, but the the best example I can use is like for for white folks is how come we tend to think of anybody with a British accent as being intelligent? You know, it's sort of like a disposition that we have as Americans to hear a, a British accent and think, wow, they must be like a professor or something like that. That's internalized oppression. Are you saying that British people are dumb? No, I'm saying that they're just they're just as smart or dumb as we are. Ah, okay. But because over generations, the people with those accents were in positions of authority, we've internalized that to believe that somehow we're less than but then we have to we have to t- take a look in the mirror and realize that because white folks have been in a position of authority in general, especially in this country, 
over people of color and when white men have been in positions of authority over authority over women that that internalized oppression uh, flows through us too to where people assume that oh if a white man is speaking then then he must be right about something mm-hmm. you know as opposed to the the woman or the person of color who's a his interlocutor his discussion partner and the outcome of that phenomenon is that even when power structures are overturned let's say that happened some people just may not get on board yeah even when they're set free i can give us a real world example of this that happened this week and uh, i told court um, that i've been talking about substance use non-stop with my congregations with my friends it seems like it's and we've seen in the news recently how overdoses in this country spiked during the pandemic because people were isolated, people were alone. So we've been doing these, we've been um, projecting these video calls on Zoom in our church basement the past two weeks, um, just one night a week. And last last night, no, two, two nights ago, anyway, it doesn't matter because you're not going to hear this today. I ain't got time to mess with it today, yeah. Okay, anyway, so so this week, one evening at our church, we watched a presentation on how to talk to children about drug use. And it was presented from the National Harm Reduction Coalition. And I was surprised to see that the experts that were on the panel were all women of color. Mm-hmm. And I realized in myself that I was worried that the people in the room, my congregants, might not accept their authority. Now, I was having trouble with it myself. I was like, well, they should have a white guy on here, at least one to like, you know. But the thing is that communities of color and mothers uh, are on the front lines of, of the conversations that we have with our children about drug use. That these are the, these are the communities that have been targeted for... Uh, it, through law enforcement in terms of um, arrest, making arrests for drug use. But also, I mean, you look, you dig into the history, you see some shady stuff about drugs actually being pushed on such communities mm-hmm. in order to create trouble. Um, and so we shouldn't, we shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't be surprised, none of us should be surprised that the experts now in this field of how to have um, well-informed, and non-judgmental conversations with our children about drug use that they may see or experience are going to be women of color. It makes sense because you go where the drugs are likely to be seen or experienced. Right. And if we want to have a conversation about um, abuse of power amongst uh, authority figures, Bathsheba should be on that power or yeah. on that panel, that panel. Sorry. Yeah. Bathsheba should be on that panel because uh, she has the experience. She's the voice we need to be listening to. And we rarely listen to her voice when mm-hmm. we read the story. In mm-hmm. fact, does she even talk? She doesn't talk until she st- sticks up for her son Sammy, or Solomon. I'm yeah. getting all the names wrong today. That's all right. Uh, she doesn't talk until she get, has to stand up for her son Solomon later on in the story. But yeah, I mean, it is, it is um, disappointing that we don't hear her testimony in all of this. And we have to kind of read between the lines uh, and, and not let the focus of the narrative on David deprive us of the lessons that we can learn from Bathsheba in this situation. 
Yeah. And it, it's sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, even when she doesn't talk, you can still learn a lot from her. I, I challenge my congregation to put themselves in the position of every person in the story, mm-hmm. which here is really four people, but really three. And it's horrifying to put yourself in Bathsheba's position but I am even more horrified when I put myself in in David's position at the kind of monster that I'm now seeing myself as becoming. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm becoming that kind of person. But when if you really do this thought exercise and take it to the nth degree and like really try to internalize imagining yourself in that position, you see David differently. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the thing that broke me. Mm-hmm. Of the and I, I was probably like in undergrad, like freshman year or something when this happened. But that was the the thing that broke me of this thinking that I knew this story. But the beautiful thing about that is that I started doing that with other biblical stories, mm-hmm. and it really made the Bible come alive to me. Yeah, because stop thinking you know the Bible. Right. Is that's the first step to actually knowing the Bible, mm-hmm. and then you do it again. And every yeah. time you do that, something else will come alive to you. Yeah, I think that there's a sense in which, because we know that David is an important biblical figure, uh, before we even touch the Bible, before we even open it, there's a sense in which coming to the Bible as a new as a newcomer, I've heard that David's an important figure, so I open up a story in Second Samuel and I read about what David's doing, and my 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 first reaction or my my first inclination is to give him the benefit of the doubt because i i'm looking for what society has told me or my preachers have told me along the way that david was this flawed character but he was a good king he was you know one after god's own heart so i'm looking for examples of that narrative that i already have in my head in the scripture and i think what's important to note is we shouldn't do that, especially for this story. Like, don't twist a story about David um, sinning against his fellow uh, soldier and and Uriah's wife, and you know, a fellow Israelite, and and God and God and you know, sowing lies and all of this. Don't try to read into that something good about him. Yeah, it's okay to just let him be evil in this situation and look for those lessons of why he's good later like when he uh repents before nathan yeah and and confesses his sin and tries to figure out how to make it right yeah i think that one of the i don't want to i don't want to find jesus in every story and i also don't want to blame jesus for anything but i think what we do with the fact that david weighs heavily on Christmas hmm. and Jesus being born in the line of David and sitting on the throne of David and all these things condition us to try to put a white hat on David and a black hat on Bathsheba. So we read the story and we instantly know who's the white hat, who's the black hat. That's good guy, bad guy from old Westerns. And when we do that, we say, okay, David obviously has the white hat on. And so anyone else in the story that David has a problem with must be the enemy. And Mm -hmm. then we do everything we can without even thinking about it to make that come about. 
see what color cowboy hats uh, uh, Jeff Bezos yeah. and his crew were wearing when they stepped out of the the rocket that they flew to space. They're kind of tan, weren't they? They were they were whitish tan. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. They, they weren't. Want, they weren't black. We know yeah. that. Yeah. They want to portray themselves as the good guys in this story. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to get too far into that. <laughs> okay. A lot of fun, fun things you can do with that story, then. Yeah. Anyway, so if you're listening to this three months or so down the road, this is the day that, or this was the day after, Amazon dude Jeff flew, Bezos flew almost to space. I will not say he went to space because he went to the edge of space. He should have just stayed out there. Huh? I got no problem. He never done anything to me. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm helping him get richer every day. Oof. Yeah. Well, you know, that's how it goes with uh, with kings and lords. Yeah. Well. Anyway, we can talk about big business and billionaires if you want to, but we don't have to either. I wonder how big Jeff Bezos' couch is. That's a weird thing to say. I don't. Well, see, weird. David was sitting on this couch when oh. he should have been when he should have been out in the trenches. He's looking looking into people's windows like yeah. a creep. Yeah. How, well, big, how big was his telescope? Jeff Bezos is totally a creep. You can yeah. quote me on that. He, he is. Li- he's not looking in your windows. He's listening into your bedrooms because oh. you're prime TV or whatever. Yeah. Which I have and love. <laughs> right. Yeah. You trust him with that? Uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. I wonder how many days Jeff Bezos has put in in the stock room. Hey, Jeff Bezos, if you're listening, you want to sue Peter Constantin, <laughs> not Court Green. I don't think we're syndicated by by Amazon, so we're, we're good Yet. to go. Yeah. Where do we go from here? How yeah. big is his couch? Yeah, how big is his couch? How anyway. big is his cowboy hat that he rides to space with? All right, so getting back on track. There's so many important things theologically going on here. You have... Your ability to trust authority you have and and you know is god really behind everything some authoritarian says which a lot of people believe you have misuse of authority and our responsibilities as believers to rein in any power that we might have um, and not lord it over the rest of god's creations um you obviously have lying you have um you have misogyny you, both in you, practice and in the writing to where Bathsheba doesn't get uh, a, a word to say in this whole story. You've got a militant society where people are just assuming that war is something that you do every spring. Almost like hunting season on your neighbors. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot. There's a lot here. It's rich. Yeah, it's rich. Dive in, ladies and gentlemen. Second Samuel, it's got it all. Um, what else do we want to talk about, Peter? Well, I guess... Um, it doesn't have to be from Second Samuel. No, I want to bring this to a conclusion that maybe um, our, our listeners can walk away with something. Uh, and, and when I read the Old Testament and I, I come upon a story like this, I find myself asking the question, like, how is this story good news? Now, I know that not every story in the Bible is necessarily good news, but, but I want to try to redeem as much of the Bible as possible. And I wonder, Court, if you've thought about how could this story, how could even this story be good news, or how can it direct us towards Christ? Whether we whether it directs us to Christ or not, I certainly think that this story is good news when we look at it in its totality. Because part of the good news is 
rescuing us from evil. And if you don't show the readers what evil is, then you're not showing a complete, as complete as possible the picture of the good news that God has for us. And sometimes rescuing us from ourselves is a part of that. In fact, a lot of times, rescuing us from ourselves is a part of the good news. And so I'm glad, like you said earlier, you said that it was downright miraculous, and I agree, but I'm definitely glad that the Bible does not remove these stories of human evil and human flaws from the narrative because we need that to have a complete picture of what exactly is the good news. Because for, for many, we do the same thing with the gospel that we do with the story of David. We repaint it. Mm-hmm. We say in the Baptist life, we say, well, you say the sinner's prayer and you get saved. That's the good news. There's so much more than that. Mm-hmm. Because without knowing from what we were saved, oh, hell, no. Yes, I guess. But also human depravity. Right, the, the hell we create. For the lies we believe and the lies we say. And they, all the stuff that we do, yes, to others as well as to ourselves. Our own tortured souls. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much that we can find in these pictures of these characters in the Bible that illustrates in such a deep way exactly, not exactly, but in a more clear way what it is from which we are rescued. And it makes me more thankful that Mm. God is able to rescue, Mm. that God is even willing and seems to even want to rescue us. Because, you know, like the God we see in Exodus quite often, I'd be ready to wash my hands with us. Mm-hmm. And so there's good news in itself that God's even willing to be there and be with us as we stumble through this life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I can, um, I can from the pulpit, I, I have made people cry by telling them how much God loves them. I've seen the tears come down people's face. And yet, as a pastor... I sometimes find myself holding myself in a different category, like somehow grace doesn't apply to yeah, me. We do, and uh, and so stories like this are helpful to me to you know to just remember like that God's grace was enough even for David um, and for Joab uh, to to uh, to welcome them to to welcome them back from what they have done wrong to redeem them from the sins that they committed. Um, and to even use them to do great things. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we end it there? It's been a really good conversation about the advantages and the disadvantages of the stories we have in the Old Testament, what they t- teach us and what they don't teach us. And if you have uh, other scriptures in mind that you're interested in hearing more about and you'd like to um, ask us to, to do an episode on them or someone from the community you think we need to be talking with, please uh, call my church number and leave a message. It's 828-648-0380. Or you can contact Court Green or I on Facebook and just send us a direct message. We'd love to hear from you. One more thing, uh, while we're contacting people, if you happen to know the pastor of Morningstar Baptist Church, I'm not going to say his name, but 
let him know that uh, I am going to keep putting pressure on him to be on this show. And so he needs to go ahead and take me up on my invitation to be on it next week. If not, I'm just going to increase the uh, the uh, the pressure and pushing him and pushing him to be on this. I think it's Dutch Cove Baptist Church. Morningstar. No, United no, Methodist. no, no. It is. is there Morningstar? No, I'm talking about Baptist? Morningstar. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. So for Pastor Potluck, I'm Court Green, and I'm Peter Constantian. Peace.